Kiora and welcome to another podcast in the intriguing series People, Places and the Climate Crisis. And in fact, this is the final podcast in the main information series where I have the privilege of interviewing 16 great climate experts on climate and local government in the lead up to the local body elections in October. I'm Lindsay Wood from the Resilience Climate Trust, and we're running this series in conjunction with Fresh FM, the top of the South's community access radio station. At the end of the podcast, I'll let you know other ways that you can listen to this interview and other interviews in the series. And now it's time for this interview with Professor Bronwyn Hayward of the University of Canterbury, Bronwyn is a wonderful person to close off our series, as I'm sure you will find, and she has the general theme of what does all this mean? So without delaying any further, I do hope you enjoy Bronwyn Hayward and her summing up of the situation in the lead-up to the local government elections. Enjoy. Well, it's hard to know where to start when introducing Professor Bronwyn Hayward, as she has such an astonishing CV. I first came across her through her acclaimed studies on the social impacts of the Canterbury earthquake, especially on young people. Bronwyn is a professor in the Department of Political Science and International Relations at the University of Canterbury, and is the director of the Sustainable Citizenship and Civic Imagination Research Group. And how I love the idea of civic imagination. I want to join your group. Um, Many listeners will know she was a lead author in the latest IPCC sixth assessment report on impacts, adaptation and vulnerability. And as if that's not enough, Bronwyn is the 2022 Supreme winner of New Zealand's Women of Influence Awards, where she was described by Stuff CEO Sinead Boucher as having a relentless focus helping New Zealand become a leader in tackling climate change. Bronwyn, it's wonderful privilege to have you on our People, Places and the Climate Crisis series and how lucky we are to have your relentless focus to help us gain perspective on the complex issues we face. A very big welcome and thanks for joining us. Kia ora, Lindsay. Thanks so much for having me. Kia ora, Bronwyn. I'd like to give you an open mic and Tell the listeners and me what you think is most important. May I invite you to share with us what single message you'd most like them and me to take to heart in contemplating our relationship with the climate emergency and regarding local government especially? Well, it's a bit hard to know where to start with that, but I think if I could only say one thing to communities, I would say that whatever we do, we need to make sure that we protect our most vulnerable. And if mm. we protect the most vulnerable in our communities uh, in a changing climate, then everyone else benefits. And, and those who are vulnerable include um, low-income and ethnic minorities, children, older people, Indigenous communities. Um, we talk in the report that you mentioned, the Impacts and Adaptation Report, about the 3.6 billion people who are already highly vulnerable around mm, the world, and that's mm. in what they're calling hotspot areas, uh, particularly in southern Africa and areas like Bangladesh, obviously in the small states. But then within our communities, there are individuals and family Fano um, who are going to be extremely affected. We've seen that in, you mentioned the earthquakes, we've seen that mm. in disasters. 
some people are in a better situation to be able to use what we call your social capital, your networks to be able to get help to move than others. And that's why after disasters, we see a really large number of women and girls are usually in the fatalities. And they're things that we don't often talk about. And it's because of a whole lot of small things adding up to a big thing. So if we think about stepping away from the climate for a minute and think about a disaster like the Arche, the tsunami Mm. that we had in this region in Asia, the aftermath of deaths were mostly women and girls. And it was a whole combination of things. Women, the way women dressed, where they live in the house, their lack of access to a cell phone, their lack of access to education about the warning signs to look for. Now, in a changing climate where we have very significant risks, flooding, fires, droughts, big sea inundation, Mm. then it's extremely important that we think about how we protect the most vulnerable and make sure that we've done that. Thank you. That's a very clear message and I think one that we should all take to heart. I'd like to explore that more with you if we get a chance down the series. And and in a way, that covers part of what I was going to ask about a just transition. And I remember hearing you say, or in the report that you're a co-author of, climate impacts are felt disproportionately by the most socially and economically marginalised. And that's exactly what you're saying, isn't it? Yes, and also the other... The other difficult thing with just transitions, the fair change from one system to another, is that it means that it applies to every system that you're trying to shift so that you don't Mm. hurt people. Um, And we take our students over to the West Coast. Well, we haven't for the last two years because of flooding and COVID, Mm. (laughs) but normally we take them to Westport. And the students are always full of ideas about how you could help a community like Westport transition away from its history of coal and gold, mm. gold mining. And they're always full of ideas about sustainable tourism and all the sorts of things you can do with forestry until they get there. And then they realise once they've tromped around and listened to and interviewed the community and met the mayor and the city council and community leaders and health workers and social workers and schools, that communities have tried everything and actually replacing the income of uh, a large energy industry like solid energy is extremely mm. hard. Yes. When you lose a big employer like that, you lose the people that make up your PTA, the people that make up your sports clubs, the mm. people that make up firefighting. And the same for, uh, we don't like to talk about it, but the same for dairy. It's been a huge um, source of investment in rural communities. Mm. Uh, if we are to shift away from dairy, we need to think about it, in my view, just like we think about shifting away from oil and coal, that that the effect on communities of moving from these big sources of employment uh, and income is going to be really devastating unless it's carefully managed. Now, people get extremely frustrated with that. No, I'm with There's you on that. arguments about dairy has made a lot of money. Uh, surely we don't need to subsidise them further. But there's also huge debt. And as a country, we had governments successively encouraging that transition to dairy. We've got very large corporations. We're now expecting individual farmers to be making significant changes. But to actually make the the kind of fair transitions that we need across all our industries, that is going to require Mm. some careful government intervention and support. So that means Mm. getting over ourselves and thinking of this as a shared problem. 
I'm so glad you said that because I've made almost exactly the same comment. I don't know if you know who Sophie Hanford is, the young MP, yes. uh, not MP, the councillor. And I was interviewing Sophie and I made exactly the same point that a just transition might be a, a dairy farmer on a river flat where they're giving up a long-time family farm or something. Um, and so that fits in the space. Or swapping to about. some kind of agriculture that's going to be less um, economically mm. productive and more regenerative and sustainable for the yes. community. And, and, and we've also, sneered at England. We've mm. sneered at countries <laughs> that subsidise farming. Um, but farmers were, and I'm not defending farmers, but we have to think about the fact that when we brought in the main economic um, revolutions that we saw in 1984, the first industry to lose all its subsidies was farming. It was, wasn't it? And and yes, it is subsidised in other ways now, which is the climate and the ways in which we support the development of Fonterra mm. and other industry. But shifting that industry is going to be very difficult and it it's is. going to take government support. Wow, yeah. Thank you so much. I think it's very important that we keep that broad perspective. So uh, I'd like to keep talking about that, but we better just drift on. I know that you're, you've advocated that New Zealand, and in fact, Sinead Boucher made this point in the presentation to you, that we, we could in New Zealand be a, a leader in climate initiatives and climate responses. And I would love to put you in the position with a magic hat on. And if I give you a magic wand and say, could you please cast a climate leadership spell over the country? How might yeah. it work its magic if we were in New, New Zealand Inc. were to become a, a climate leader in a global sense? I think first we have to get over our rhetoric. <laughs> we just think we're marvellous and we're hopeless. <laughs> uh, we are one of only two countries that have had continuing growing emissions in developed mm. economy. That's that's terrible. Shocking. Isn't so it? actually everybody else is doing better than us except Turkey. <laughs> so for a start, we can say, well, we've got these industries like dairy that are um, very difficult to transition away from. And we've done a lot of work around hydro already. Mm. So it's much more hard for us. But actually it's hard for every country. And uh, they've all got their own challenges. So for us, the advantage we've got is that we're small. And there are very few degrees of separation. So in terms of making policy changes, often we know each other or mm, our communities mm. know each other. So scaling up the things that work, connecting with other communities to understand what's working in one city with what's working in another, we need to do more of that. We don't necessarily need that led by central government, but we do need our local communities to connect with each other to share best practice. We are looking at this three waters reform, which has given everybody a, a lot of angst. Um, mm. If we hold for all of what I basically think is, a, is the racism that's involved in worrying about COGIT governance, I still think there are some issues that we need to deal with around how do we make sure that local communities and local voices are heard in planning? Because one of the lessons from the IPCC reports is that you need to make sure that your local communities are clearly heard in your mm. environmental and social and climate planning and because they're going to be the people who pick up the signals quite fast when things are going wrong. They need mm. to be able to have a way in which they can be heard quickly. Mm. And New Zealand is good at that. That's one way we can lead. 
around the world, we've seen lots of countries developing mitigation and adaptation plans, but they haven't implemented them yet. And so we could actually start putting in place our own plans for both reducing our emissions and adapting to our local mm. conditions. Mm. Now, we've always waited for central government to give us mm. some leadership on this, but I think that the new sea level rise report that Tim Nationed, the yes, team's about, yeah. is giving us a very clear steer about how fast we can expect to have um, impacts on our towns. Mm. 65% of us live within five kilometres of the coast. We're on these shaky islands that are moving as well as sea level rise happening. Mm. It is happening quicker than we think. So having science-informed local decision-making would make a big difference. And I'm surprised when I visit local councils how confused people are about how fast this might happen, mm. when we could expect to see these problems. And councillors individually tend to respond ranging from realising that we're looking at a very compressed 10 to 15 year time frame to others are saying, well, this will be a sort of a 30 to mm. 70 year horizon. And you think, actually, guys, this is one small country. Think faster. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm think totally that with you. Yeah. Nasha's report is going to really help us think about the, the way in which the effects are going to happen much faster than we expect. Is, is there, Bronwyn, a, a missing link in the chain of We've got the scientific knowledge, we've got the elected councillors, and I'm hearing from you, and I agree with what I heard, that the science isn't permeating the decision-making enough, um, particularly when it comes to envisaging things like the rate of change and the scope of change. So do you think there's um, a missing link in the communication or the obligations of councils to take on board stuff? I recall, for example, a few years ago, that I think it might have been the Westland District Council voted not to accept that sea level rise was going as fast as the scientists said. It was something like that. And I was thinking, is that a legitimate thing for a council to decide? You know, <laughs> Can you comment on the, the that continuum well, between councils, science and decisions? Yeah, councils have been waiting for national uh, policy statements and some leadership. And every little council has been locked into its own legal battles with mm. developers who are disputing the science or are determined to build on the coast. Yes. It's been a very sort of slow and difficult process around the country. It doesn't have to be that slow and doesn't have to be that difficult. I think that something like the sea level rise report that's just come out is a mm. bit of a game changer right. because I think New Zealand is quite practical, and I think once we can get that report and mm. its effects in local areas around the country quite quickly, using the NIWA climate at home maps mm. plus these sea level maps, and there's two things I think need to happen. We need to bring elected councillors up to speed with how fast these changes are going to happen, mm. but we also need broader conversations in local communities about what changes they're seeing and what they want to have happen. And we had kind of put that off for a while. Extinction Rebellion, I know, as an organisation, has been very keen on citizen assemblies. Mm. And even though actually a long time ago I did my, um, my early PhD work around the value of getting communities talking and listening to each other, I'd been a bit hesitant about more public meetings because they 
They don't work. They tend to be dominated by certain groups of people. But actually, we need more local conversations about Mm. how climate is affecting us and what we can do about that. So I think it's joining up, informing local councillors about the science, but also local communities getting more of a chance to actively talk about and lead their own change. And that's where we could be a very effective leadership, a model for other countries. We're small, we are opinionated, (laughs) uh, but actually we're quite practical. And so I think thinking about how we can respond to the disasters that are coming thicker and faster and how we could actually contribute to reducing the impacts and reducing our contribution to that is something we can all have a say about and we should be. I think that's a perfect segue into the next question, which harks back to your civic imagination involvement, your your group at uh, the university. Um, because to me, what you've just been talking about, one dimension of that is civic imagination, people talking about what might be happening or councils getting a better, better handle on the future. Um, it really resonates with me, that group. And, and when I interviewed Climate Change Commissioner James Renwick in earlier in this series, I referenced the former colleague of his, Prof Nick Agar. I don't know if you've come across Nick. And he used the lovely term imagination insurance for a way of visualising what might happen and then using it as a way of um, safeguarding yourself or, or preparing for what might happen. I wonder if you could give us a glimpse into how your group works, hopefully point to some of its findings and maybe even see how some of our local councils could uh, fire up their civic imagination a bit. I know that's a very wide-sweeping question, but please do your best. I love that idea. I'd love to know more about the imagination and insurance. But um, for us, in our projects, one of the projects we've got, which I just love, is um, a study that the English Economic and Social Research Council's funded, um, which is called Cycles, and it's about children and young people in cities, mm-hmm. and it's a, a lifestyle and sustainability evaluation. So we're following children and young people aged 12 to 24 in seven cities around the world, one of which is Christchurch, because I live here and we argue <laughs> what we'd had the earthquakes, and, yeah. and I lead the study, so I'm going to have well my done. own down in it. Yeah. But others range from New Delhi, London, um, Yokohama in the UK, Sao Paulo and Brazil, um, and with and Grahamstown, which is now called Makanda, it's renamed to its original name in South Africa. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about those studies, um, and Dakar, I should add, in Brazil, is that what we find is that people feel more confident that they can imagine and affect change Uh, we call it political agency, but they feel more confident when they are feeling valued, recognised, supported. One of the really difficult things about COVID and all of the anti-vax and all of the misinformation Mm. is that it's exacerbating a process of actually shutting down people's ability to imagine and affect change. Instead, Mm. because you you feel like you can't control the things that are happening to you, you start looking for conspiracy theories that help you make sense of the way that you feel like you're a victim and that things are happening to you you can't control. And that gives you a kind of insider status. And it becomes quite a a problem in politics when this Mm. sort of becomes a downward spiral. 
Now, my worst fear is that that also starts happening in climate. As we get more and more of these major storm and drought effects, people are flooded several times, they're feeling very isolated. You become very susceptible to very authoritarian forms of government. You Mm. want somebody to blame. You want somebody who's going to fix this. Mm. You don't want to think about this as a systemic issue. Uh, You don't want to think about the long term. You just want this issue fixed, which is reasonable. Mm. It's reasonable to need to feel you want a safe house and a a, um, good place to live. But taking to deal with that, we need to take some collective long-term action to make sure that we're protecting everybody. And Mm. so retaining that democratic imagination, I think is going to be hugely important, as important Mm. as retaining our um, ability to have some choices in a changing climate. Yes. Uh, Oh, look, that's wonderfully put. Thank you. As you were talking, I was mindful in another in another life, I used to work at Unitech, and I used we used to take creative problem solving courses. And one of the models we put up was yes if instead of no because. You know, if you you've probably come across this, but if you get a get an issue and a possible answer or course of action, and the easy thing is to say no, that won't work because this and this. But if you go go to yes if suddenly you're saying yes, we can make it work, but we have got things to do to make it work. And I think what you were saying made me think of that. Sorry, that's a yeah, bit of an, think, that's an aside. No, but, but I mean, we're sort of talking around, if people are listening to this, they'll be wondering how on earth is this connected to climate? But in a way, mm. we've kind of got to stop talking about climate porn and all the climate sort of drama and actually think about how we collectively solve problems. Mm. And my worry with the whole language of climate emergency is always from living in Christchurch through an emergency is that the first thing that happens in an emergency is that we shut down options. Um, We have to act and react. Of course, we have to act quickly. But framing everything as an emergency puts people on high alert. It closes down your imagination for democratic and longer term fundamental Mm, solutions. mm. So there is a real problem that you exclude those who are already excluded. A lot of Māori and Pacific young activists have been really pushing back against this emergency framing. And there's a beautiful phrase that uh, Professor Tracy Bundy um, from the University of Queensland, who works uh, as a Torres Strait Aboriginal Mm. scholar and leader, she talks about climate calm. And every morning before she starts all her research and her work with her teaching and all of her community advocacy, she goes out and she names everything with the hist- and greets everything in her environment with its names and its songs from hundreds mm. of years ago. Wow. And she talks about this as a sense of climate calm, of reminding herself about the past and the future. And there's a lovely also lesson in this from uh, the civil rights um, and environmental justice campaigner, um, Professor Robert Bullard from the States. And he talks about this as being the climate crisis is actually, it's not a, re- it's not a race. It's not a sprint. It's not even a marathon. It's a relay marathon across generations. Mm. And we need to work to find ways to sustain our communities to face really big issues and young people across time. Mm. Not only very well put in a very big perspective, 
But it's interesting. This series has grown like Topsy from what was going to be just four little interviews on local radio to a, a sort of nationwide podcast. And the, the title for it grew like Topsy as well. And we've ended with people, places, and the climate crisis. And I, I've always, I've recently thought I'm a bit uncomfortable about that. So I think we should rename it now, people, places, and the climate calm. <laughs> I think the trouble is that if you do climate calm, everyone goes, but it's not, it's an emergency. Yeah, I know, that's right. But it's that sense of how do we keep our imagination and possibilities mm. for action. Yeah. You raised before we started the way in which climate is a, an underlying intensifier for mm, our problems. Yes. So the the changing climate creates what we call compounding and cascading disaster events. So a drought will compound an economic de- uh, recession. Mm. It might also, or a big heavy snow dump might then create a power outage, which yes. has all sorts of effects both for um hypothermia for for burglary and street crime all sorts mm. of unexpected uh, issues that cascade and compound from underlying disasters that have happened in one situation and so trying to think in the long view and calmly about how to solve complex difficult compounding problems I think is an essential skill mm. for future generations yeah Bronwyn, you've given us some amazing perspectives, and I think some of them quite unexpected, thank you, and you've encouraged me to rethink the name of this series. Um, however, we, we don't have indefinite time, unfortunately, and I one of the delights of having someone with, with your capabilities on the show is that, and listeners know this well, I love being able to say to a specialist like you, will you please close by sharing with us your own top take-home message or messages for listeners generally, but especially for those wanting to factor climate change into their thinking on the coming local elections. Over to you. Well, I think there's sort of three points I'd make. One, which I made in the opening, which is to make sure that we're focusing on our most vulnerable in the actions that we're taking. Mm -hmm. The second is to really make this practical and local We need to think in our urban communities, especially because that was the chapter I was leading on cities, Mm -hmm. how can we make our infrastructure more resilient into the future in the changing climate with these dramatic storm events? Mm -hmm. Now, by infrastructure, most cities are focused only at the moment on what we call the grey or the physical infrastructure. So there's a lot of emphasis around building seawalls, or creating sirens and early warning ways of alerting people to danger, Mm. getting them out of the way, which is sensible and immediate. But the problem with focusing on something like a seawall is it doesn't actually solve the underlying problem and it often just shifts it to the next Mm. community. Mm. So a seawall may end up creating greater erosion and flow down to the next beach. It also has a moral hazard effect that people continue to build where we don't actually mm. think they should be. Belinda's story is quite big on that, isn't she? She has She's a lot great to say. On that. Mm. Cities are focused a lot on physical infrastructure, mm. uh, particularly these seawalls and the sirens, the early warning systems. And the problem with things like seawalls is that it shifts the problem downstream. It mm. doesn't, and it encourages people to build behind where the seawall is and actually places people long-term in greater danger. Mm. So one of the things we were trying to say in the research uh, for the IPCC reports was we need to also think about infrastructure as both 
green particularly so thinking about our trees and our environment um the way in which we can use nature to really mm. help cool our cities absorb water mm. all of that kind of sort of but that only works up to about two degrees of warming once mm. we get over two degrees we don't know how these nature-based solutions will work no, right. but they are something that we need to think about in our infrastructure but the other really core issue we need to think about is the way in which we can use our social infrastructure, our um, mm. ways in which we have income support, education and health, mm. and that helps our, our most vulnerable. Mm. And so pulling all of those sort of practical steps together, the big take-home message that came out of the last IPCC reports that is almost lost for New Zealand is that we need what we're calling climate resilient development, which is an integration of adaptation and mitigation actions. So mm. everything that we do um, not just re reduces emissions but protects people. Where possible, we're doing both of those things the mm. same. And we do them in just and fair ways so that we're thinking about how that's going to impact on communities. So using a variety of knowledges, including Indigenous knowledge, which has been a big focus of this round of reports, mm. because it's because Indigenous community knowledge has a lot of experience about problem solving, about the history of the past, about ways in which you can build community solidarity. But local knowledge generally has as well. So taking people with you in that decision-making mm. process really helps a much more climate-resilient development. But once we get start getting over two degrees of warming overall from where we were back in the 1880s before we started this great big mm. fossil fuel adventure, once we get over that two degrees of warming, we've got very few choices. Mm. And so acting now, taking everyone with us is critical. Yes, well, and I mean, you've framed it in terms of a, a people and a science thing there, haven't you, with with the two degrees and the the unknown behaviour of some of maybe the nature-based solutions and so on. Just just to flick to one side, I don't know if you've come across Roland Enos, who is a, uh, I think, University of Norwich or Nottingham in the UK, and he's done stuff on research on the cooling effects of trees, almost quantified them, like uh, this size tree is equivalent, equivalent to an air conditioner of that sort of power sort of thing. Very interesting. Yes, there's a lot of, it, um, I think he's at U, it might be at UEA, but there's a lot of really great work even in New Zealand around, not even in New Zealand, and in New Zealand <laughs> around trees. Even at Canterbury, uh, Justin Morgenthau is doing some great work around looking at where trees are located. And again, mm. the trees, the cooling effect of trees, their ability to, and green space is distributed unevenly. So mm. the wealthier the community, the more trees you've got. And that's really obvious in a place like Christchurch. Mm. And particularly our low-income communities with lots of children have very few trees and very mm. little green space. So in our new plans for urban density, I'm just really hoping and urging government not to create a second crisis. So in dealing with the housing crisis, we have to make sure that we still retain big trees and green space as um, much as we can. Well, unfortunately, we've reached the end of our time with Bronwyn Hayward. It's been such a privilege and pleasure to have a conversation with you. So thank you for fitting us into what I know is a particularly busy time for you. Oh, kia ora. Thank you so much for uh, the chance to talk. Thanks a lot, Lindsay. 
Well, I found talking with Bronwyn really humbling and such a fitting way to close off this series. She brings such a powerful combination of wisdom and of expertise, and also she has a wonderful knack of expressing it so beautifully. So that's the last of this podcast series on the lead up to the local government elections. At least it's the last of the ones with interviews with experts. However, for those that are interested, we will be running more as I interview candidates for the Nelson and Tasman areas, at least mayoral candidates for the Nelson and Tasman areas, who are going to be posed for identical questions and then we will run podcasts comparing their different answers to those questions. Then finally we'll have a summing up episode where we will have five local climate savvy citizens evaluating both what's important for our region in a climate sense and also how the different mayoral candidates seem to stack up. So I hope that you will enjoy joining us for that and look forward to your company then. Now, as always, I will give you other options for listening. You can actually go to the company website, www.resilience, that's R-E-S-I-L-I-E-N-Z, resilience.co.nz, where you'll find links to all the podcasts and other information. The podcasts, of course, go up on Spotify and Apple and other main platforms. As always, a big shout out to Kahu Sanson Burnett and many thanks, Kahu, for all your invaluable support and doing the sound tech work and getting it up on podcast platforms and so on. And of course, a big shout out to you, our listeners. Thank you so much for joining us for this series and the important discussion that underpins it. That was the end of the specialist interviews, as you know. Perhaps we'll enjoy your company for the mayoral candidate interviews. But in any event, kia kaha for the climate.